The following episode is the prepared audio version of a live Google Hangout originally streamed on October the 31st, 2015. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcasts. situation here there are two uh two portly gents sat here on a sofa enjoying the best that saturday morning has to offer and there in australia is someone else someone in a darker frame hello ian <laughs> hello i have embraced my inner darkness well as well you might for of course this is the 80s kids halloween special delayed but it could never be stopped. No, we could not be stopped. People tried to stop us, but... It didn't... I think they should, really, but anyway. <laughs> but it didn't it was like one of those slasher killers. We stuck a kitchen knife in it, fell over, we thought it was dead, and just got back up again. Exactly, which is precisely the kind of thing that we're going to be discussing today, although actually it's not because we're talking about Stephen King, and he hasn't done much slasher stuff. Let's get straight in there. Justin, your familiarity with the works of Stephen King, do you read the books, or do you just I've, watch the I've films? Only, um, it's mainly the films and and TV. I've, I think I've read one of his, but it's not really like that. That's, that's um, Dolores Claiborne, which is not really like the other horror things. It's more like the Green Mile kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the versions of it. How accurate they are, of course, is is up to much debate. And but yes. well, I think as we go through the program, we'll probably find that accuracy is not the issue when it comes to adaptations of Stephen King. But uh, Ian, what tell us about your experiences of the horror meister? Well, occasionally there'll be like a film or miniseries, and it would make a big thing about the fact it was based on a book by Stephen King. And you very quickly learn this is not necessarily a hallmark of quality, even though he is a name <laughs> to be reckoned with. So I have not read any Stephen King books, although Leo has spoken to me about Stephen King books and has aped them to me from time to time. I think we're watching, like, was it The Stand? I was like, it's just one character, and, you know, he's like, maybe it's like a lab guy or something, and you know, something breaks out, and then he runs off, and then he dies. And it's like, yeah, in the book, that was several pages explaining his backstory and his life and his hopes and dreams. And then he died. It obviously loses something in the translation to the TV screen. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the many issues which we shall encounter with the uh, adaptation of Stephen King. What's really weird is, and this is one of the reasons why it, it tipped me into wanting to do this for Halloween. Stephen King adaptations or Stephen King sort of media products, which are seen as as a jolly good time. Uh, in fact, the one that we we that prompted this was that Sue, who is over in the corner, standing aloof. There, she's, she's here, her in the background. Her she's she's losing there's, her religion. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's down the back of the city. Whereas it looks like we are the ones who are in the spotlight because of the picture, but there we go. Sue wanted to watch Maximum Overdrive. This is generally agreed not to be a great Stephen King product, but it is also generally agreed to be a fun time while you're watching it, all the trucks being in the, the Green Goblin truck and yeah, what have yeah, you, yeah. ACDC. So, you know, that's, that's fair enough. And I started to think on the n- amount of adaptations. And I think what's really weird about it is because Stephen King is such a known property, the quality of the adaptation and the suitability for adapting has bizarrely played virtually no part whatsoever in the production of the goods. And that means that there's this huge tranche of our culture and pop culture that is like, why did they make this movie? This movie is weird. And the reason they made it is, hey, Stephen King is a name. He gets people to watch movies. Uh, of course, that's not always the way that it was. If we go all the way back to 1976, Brian De Palma brought us Carrie, based on the novel from 1974, which is actually a fairly decent horror movie. I think we'll uh, probably be a, a, all in agreement there, uh, except Ian's got his water can of tepid water ready to pour, surely. Well, this is a Stephen King night, so obviously I have given the extra extra helpings of lukewarm water today in my tepid water. <laughs> but, uh, uh, as, as far as I understand it, now... Carrie was his first published horror book, or pu- first published book, period. Am I, am yeah. I correct in that? Alec was a yeah. bestseller. Someone bought up the film rights, and someone made a film. And gosh darn it, wasn't the film really memorable? And Alec had that, well, the ending, memorable. Um, so I think that kind of cemented him as a massive horror. Maybe he had a few good books after that as well. But since I did, like, reputation that, yes, he could sometimes write... Um, a bestseller and sometimes produce a decent film has kind of been this thing which has allowed him to kind of churn out these somewhat tired projects over the years. We're really ragging on him. He has done good stuff. Uh, should we begin with, with Carrie? And, you know, is it a feminist film, Sue? Tell us. Yeah, I think it's all right. She thinks it's all right. From off camera, she thinks it's all right. For, feminist? I think, I think it expresses a lot of feminine issues, but I think it kind of goes about it in the wrong way to a degree. I think it could also be... He mansplained it. Oh, there we go. Justin, thoughts on Carrie? Yes, I remember that vividly when I first saw it. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those films that has a slow build-up, but the payoff, that, you know, those last kind of scenes are ingrained into your memory, really, and, you know, you, it's difficult to unsee them. It's, it's, as as horror films go, it's a classic, right? I mean, it's one of those... It's, yeah. There is a vast media conspiracy to pretend that menstruation doesn't happen at all. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's just here, it comes across as body horror. And it's like, it's so when it gets talked about, and when it does, it's always horrifying. Oh, right, yes. Okay, fair enough. There we go. I think that's a good point. Let's take a, a moment here to separate out Stephen King, the novelist, from Stephen King, the novelist who's been adapted for cinema. Stephen King novels are kind of unusual, as as Ian pointed out, in that there's a level at which the writing transcends horror and goes straight into something that's almost literary. I say almost literary, it is literary. So there's the genre trappings, but then there's all this stuff about character. And it's that thing, that engagement with the reader, that you really care about these characters, and then, you know, horror movie stuff happens to them. And that's, I think, what pulled people in and what's so fascinating. Carrie, as a novel, 
actually doesn't have that much of that because it was a first novel and it was fairly by the numbers. And he's described it as a little bit, mm, bit, bit full of uh, sturm and drag. It's too depressing, which is weird because actually it is true that it, what he does in other books is pulls up sort of people's joy and happiness and holds it in the light and then shows them getting burnt to death by dragons or something. I don't know, sometimes, or stabbed or, yeah, you know. So there is this light and shade in the novels really hard to bring to the screen and often not successful uh talking of not successful or controversial this is probably a moment in the, the where we're gonna get stuck i can see there were no more films adapted from stephen king's work until 1980 at which point we got kubrick's the shining what to say <laughs> it's definitely what kubrick's the shining I think, again, it's time for Ian to take the floor. Uh, what do you think of The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining? It's one of those films, because it's a Kubrick film, it's always overanalyzed. You can always find wonderful YouTube videos about it where they're going into all the symbolism. Even the continuity errors are deliberate continuity errors and the hidden messages, and it's all about Indian burial grounds or the fact that there's some Jewish bankers that Kubrick was upset about or something going on as a subtext. I think you told me... The fact they got Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson. To, play the, to play the dad is like, it's a dead giveaway. He's going to go crazy. If only they'd had, you know, Martin Sheen there. Martin Sheen is not always a madman. He sometimes is. Sometimes he's a perfectly reasonable human being. As maybe that might have been more interesting. But Jack Nicholson, of course, is going to go completely crazy by, by the fourth act of the film. But again, highly memorable. Maybe this, maybe in those Stephen King was like, it was not really my book. Maybe it did help cement his reputation as, as as the big horror dude to be reckoned with in this modern era. Well, I mean, it's funny you should say, because, yes, I do think that it is... I mean, Stephen King prefers the later uh, television adaptation in which <laughs> the guy who's playing is an actor who then slowly gets possessed by the house, whereas when Jack Nicholson comes in at the beginning like this, you're like, yeah, he's already crazy. What's hmm. what's the big whoop when he drinks a bit and then goes handy with an axe? That's a bit weird. I mean, the point is that Stephen King famously doesn't have much time for The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick simultaneously thought it was like, well, it's my film. You know, happens to be an adaptation of your book. But so what? I'm Stanley Kubrick. And both gentlemen have their own part in that argument. Uh, Justin, your thoughts on The Shining? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's a great Stanley Kubrick film. And, uh, yes, I've heard kind of the arguments, obviously, on how close it is to the adaptation. I don't think it matters. You know, films should stand on their own and, um, you know, as do books. So I don't have any problem with that at all. Um, I think it's great. I love Jack Nicholson. So seeing him go from uh, slightly crazy to full-on blown out and out crazy is very enjoyable, although it wasn't very enjoyable for the, no. the female lead, um, who, were, who had a horrible time on this project because, uh, yes, was kind of, um, mentally in a not a great state with, with the intensity, I think, of the situation. But I think that shows with her performance because she was utterly terrified and it's very uncomfortable for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a great, say a great Kubrick film. Has, yeah, has I, anyone, I, walked, anyone walked away from a Kubrick film going, I really enjoyed making that? Right. Well, I mean, not that we're doing a Kubrick uh, show. In fact, this is the point. This is exactly what Stephen King is talking about. We're not here to talk about Kubrick, uh, and yet he's managed to take over the show in this early stage. So I'm just going to leave it with this. I find many Kubrick films, however enjoyable they might be, insufferable merely because of their Kubrickness. 
that's all I've, I've got to say on that. And we're not here to talk about Kubrick, so I'm going to move on. But I say, oh, by the way, in 1979, there was, of course, the television adaptation of Salem's Lot. I have seen this cut down into a movie, but... Uh, I remember you... being absolutely freaked by that. Uh, I probably watched it a bit young, and th- there's a scene where this kind of head appears at a window, but it took me a long time to shift out of my mind that that was... Yeah, it was a little bit traumatic. <laughs> so that's where his dig through window cleaners came from. Yeah. Ah, well, yes, it is. Yeah, George, you can just imagine George Formby doing his Nosferatu <laughs> ukulele. <laughs> right? I think that would be uh, that would be something to behold. Uh, I, I have not seen. I have actually not seen it since, so I don't. Sure, I'm not sure how silly it might appear now. I think yeah. for our generation, there's a definite sense of us seeing Stephen King when we were too young to really see a horror film. And so we just got kind of arrested by those images, and that's why it's kind of imprinted onto our generation as a thing. Yeah, by the time I got to see Salem's Lot, the cut-down movie version of the television series, I'd already read Salem's Lot, the book, and I was kind of looking at how good the adaptation was. Now, Salem's Lot and The Shining, in fact, pull together a Stephen King trope, which readers of Stephen King allow him to get away with because of all the good stuff that goes with it as soon as it goes into film a lot of that good stuff goes away and it starts to stand out a little bit like oh, I have a sore thumb, that's actually a sore thumb, it stands out like that that's a sore thumb, that's what it stands out like and it's the fact that he has protagonists who are writers and often yes. as well uh, he compounds this uh, error uh, sort of self-insertion character with the fact that the writer is often someone who's got famous for doing some kind of genre stuff and now they want to make a move into something else and they're, they're struggling with that and that's part of their inner struggle which leads them to go mad and carve up the place with a croquet mallet. That's right, a croquet mallet. Not an axe, Stanley Kubrick. A croquet mallet. <laughs> so that's that's what happens there. Uh, so we move on. Now, at this point, obviously, we've had Carrie, we've had The Shining, we've had Salem's Lot. Stephen King is starting to get the idea that when people adapt his films straight off the bat, it's not working out. So he gets involved in a project called Creep Show, uh, which is one of those portmanteau horror movies which they only just were still making in 1982. In the 70s, Great Guns, Asylum... All of that stuff. But in 1982, not so much. Uh, but they still made Creep Show. Um, and actually, it was pretty good. I watched it the other week. Uh, it's, it's a bit creaky. It's from 1982. But it's all right. Uh, seen Creep Show, Justin? Um, possibly. I mean, I get there. Uh, is, was Joe Dante involved with that? No. So I'm probably getting that confused with something else. Uh, that Twilight Zone, I think. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I'm not sure. Maybe. But um, I'm not sure. Basically, there's a, a little bit where the, the, the first story, which everyone remembers, is about a guy who buries some other guy up to his neck in sand and then leaves a TV and he drowns and then he drowns and he comes back and he kills the guy. Uh, it's a, sort of a revenge horror. Right. It's very much EC horror comics, which was a big thing that Stephen King was very into. And it, it had like five stories in it. And that, I think, kind of helped because it was kind of energetic and spry. You might not like the whole thing, but you'll like a bit of it. Uh, Creep Show is generally good. Have you seen Creep Show, Ian? No. Then we shall is move. It, oh. Is it the one with the, with the skeleton figure that introduces it? Uh, well, no, that's Tales from the Crypt. That's one getting confused. So, yeah, uh, I, I haven't seen it. Interesting, interesting story. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt, the television series, is in fact came out of a failure to make a Creep Show television series. Right. 
So, in fact, they, you are, it is indirectly related, but there we yeah. go. Okay, so 1983 brought us Cujo. I haven't managed to watch Cujo for the show. It's about a woman trapped in a car. There's a rabid dog outside. Anyone seen Cujo? I, I have a while ago now. Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite tense, I, and the makeup was pretty good. Um, it was quite convincing. But at the end, it's, it's kind of St. Bernard, right? It's a big, and it, it always felt a bit like, oh, St. Bernard. <laughs> like a St. Bernard. I think the adaption of it wasn't probably as terrifying as maybe it should have been because it just looked like a, yeah. a lovely a lovely dog with some stuff stuck on its face, you know. Cujo was kind of unusual among Stephen King's books at the time, being as it was about, a, it was a, a whole book, a short book, a, more of a novella really, about a woman trapped in a car with a rabid St. Bernard outside and people kind of focused on the St. Bernard because they're like, he's a horror writer. So the Cujo, the St. Bernard, is the the horror element here. To which Stephen King, I think, is probably going, no, 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 you don't understand. Yes, there happens to be a Sir Bernard the Man, but it's actually a novel about being imprisoned and having to reflect upon the fact that you may die in this. And I think that's why it's a Sir Bernard, this kind of ridiculous situation. Yes, it's a Sir Rabid, but it's a Sir Bernard. I mean, the whole point is... Uh, this is just stupid. I'm going to die here. And you reflect. But the the thing about it is that the film, as I understand it, you don't really get flashbacks of her life. You just get. No, and a lot of the stuff isn't in the car. I remember her running around and stuff. I, I don't get, I didn't, from what I remember of it, I didn't get that. Um, and I know that theme is picked up in another film we, talk, we will talk about, which is handled much better. Yeah. But I can, now that you said that, I can see how that would be a, that would be a very stinky thing to do. Yeah, because, I mean, he uh, picks up later. I mean, the, the one that we they haven't made a film of, so we could talk about it. Gerald's Game, where the woman goes on hol- uh, to a weekend retreat with her husband, who's into a bit of bondage. He manages to get her handcuffed to the bed, and then he has a fatal heart attack and dies on the floor. Right. And she's handcuffed to a bed in the middle of I nowhere, am. facing the prospect that she may starve to death, handcuffed to a bed, which I is ridiculous. I am beginning to see how the adaptions, why they, why they fail. You know, it's it's to do with the way he writes and the situations that was is probably if you don't get it, is why these things don't come across. Yeah, because the whole point of the story is this person is placed into a position where they have to review the good and bad of their life in the face of mortality, with this kind of situation. The, the, the grim reaper is coming down on top of them, and they're like, "Oh, this is terrible." And that's where there is really a, a dread novel, not a horror novel. It's like a, a feeling of the, but then when they adapt at Cujo, it's like, oh, rabid dog, let's have an action movie. So yeah, that's kind of thing. So moving on, uh, David Cronenberg comes along and, uh, The Dead Zone comes up in 1983, which I think is possibly one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. Obviously went on, uh, now again, we have the Jack Nicholson in The Shining problem in that the creepy psychic is here cast as Christopher Walken. I was like, well, to be fair, he doesn't need psychic powers to be kind of sinister. He's just like, it doesn't, he doesn't come across as every man. So, uh, when they remade it, sort of remade it, uh, in the television series, the pilot is essentially the dead zone again. With Anthony Michael Hall, this was one of my favourite pieces of casting ever. Um, of course, you see, Anthony Michael Hall was really into doing the Dead Zone series, so obviously it wasn't going to be anyone else. But he comes across a lot more as he should be avuncular and friendly and every man, and now he's got these creepy powers. 
and that worked really well. But when Christopher Walken has creepy powers, you go, well, yes, but also <laughs> Christopher Walken. So, uh, yeah, but it's still, it's, I like the dead zone yeah. immensely. Uh, it's an unusual David Cronenberg movie as well. Yes. It doesn't hit on a lot of Cronenberg. So Cronenberg kind of subsumed himself to the kingness in this yeah. to a certain amount. Um, but I think he adds that sort of bleakness into the, into the fairly depressing uh, story yeah. of the, the man with the psychic hands. Uh, so you enjoy yeah, that? I did, yeah, but he has that, yeah, it's an uncomfortable film, isn't it? I mean, I think it's more and more dramatic as it goes on. And Christopher Walken is always an actor that I'm, you know, I love seeing him, but yeah, he's, he's difficult when he's full on. And so, uh, yeah, it's good, it's a good, it's a good film. I agree. It's, 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 yes, it's definitely less Cronenberg. I should, I should point out as well that it, it's kind of hilarious in the series when they work it all out so that it's like, you realize, of course, that the key factor that prevented Johnny from completely losing it and doing what he did in the novel is the addition of a blackmail nurse with dreadlocks. It's like, oh, of course, that's the one factor that stopped me going off the rails. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, odd. But there we go. And it's a pretty good novel as well, I think. I, I enjoyed the novel immensely. So this is King at his best, adapted at his best. Uh, thoughts on the dead zone, Ian? I've only seen the movie, obviously. Gentlemen, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, so nice to have this along because after those, those previous two things, like some woman in a really horrible situation novels going on, which well, like a rather grim episode of One Foot in the Grave, you know, handcuff the bed, lever falls over, heart attack, heart attack. I don't believe it! Here we are. <laughs> Here we are in Dead Zone, another very memorable one, another one that kind of puts Stephen King on the map. But however, the thing that haunts me and lingers with me to this day about this movie is his doctor and the fact he never reconnects with his mother, even though he finds her. You know, this is the doctor who got part of his mother during the Holocaust, and then suddenly Christopher Walken, yeah, says, "Ah, oh, I know where she is. I touched you, and I had that flashback, and this is where you can find her." And he picks up the phone and rings her, and the mother picks up his mother picks up and goes, "Hello, who is this?" And he doesn't answer. It wasn't meant to be. It's like, no, no, talk to your mother, talk to your Jewish mother. It's so sad. <laughs> The Dead Zone uh, generally agreed to be a fine hour and made a great television series on top of the film. So, yeah, we're all happy with that. Also in 1983, and another one, because remember, we've got Brian De Palma, Stanley Kubrick. Cujo wasn't made by anyone particularly famous, I don't think. Uh, I don't remember it. But, yes, this is Cronenberg doing The Dead Zone, and now John Carpenter's Christine, which I did rewatch specifically for the show. And what I realised upon re- when I first watched it, I wasn't that impressed. And the reason I wasn't that impressed is because I read the novel, wasn't that impressed by the novel, and then the adaptation didn't even adapt the novel I wasn't that impressed by. I was thoroughly unimpressed. Now, when I came to rewatch the movie, what I realised was that it's not the best John Carpenter movie ever, but the reason for that is because there's kind of a fight going on. John Carpenter knows what will make the idea of Christine a bit creepier, and it's not a straight adaptation of the novel. But at the same time, he doesn't want a Kubrick king at this point. Just go, I'm just going to make a movie that's loosely based upon the concept that you describe. So he tries to do some stuff that's pretty similar, and that's where the film kind of it's it's overlong it's weak it's a bit meandering the bits that uh john carpenter found this is actually a pretty cool gimmick 
And so that it's not a bad film, but it's not a great film. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, this is this is his. This has become one of his themes, isn't it? Kind of possessed item. Yes, this is the beginning of the kill object sequence. Yeah. yeah, and one of one of the films I'm sure we will talk about takes this route. It's just utterly ridiculous. But this is, yeah, I mean, I think it should work because it's kind of a fun thing to play with. But but yeah, yeah, it's okay. Uh, but that's uh, that's it really. I, I don't think I've watched it many times, and maybe once or twice, and they, they will be a long time ago. Yeah, have um, you seen Christine? Yes, I've seen Christine. I saw it when I was quite young, and so you're quite impressed by horror movies that age. Uh, of course, you know. Killer car, it's quite scary if in the, in the open with it, but it's easily avoidable if you get inside the building. I think is, is the main problem with the killer car. A lot of people had to run down blind alleys and hold themselves against the wall going, ah, and then not jump on the car as it came towards them. Uh, of course, it mends itself as well. It's at the end when it's been crushed to a cube. It's still starting to mend itself again. So it's never quite over. But like I say, this is the beginning of the killer object series. Some, assume like every, every single household item that Stephen King can look at, I think, will eventually become killer. There must have been a killer typewriter at some point, him being a writer as well, I imagine. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I think that the novel is very much about a sort of a killer car, a possessed haunted car, because Stephen King likes haunted things. He likes the idea of something. Like, it starts with haunted house, and then he's trying to diversify off that by making haunted cars, haunted trouser presses. That's a real thing. I was thinking, I was thinking trouser press. He did that. But there is, there is a haunted laundry machine, um, which is like... The drinking game is that one. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, so yeah, that's, it's a strand in his work. And what John Carpenter did very cannily was that the part that he turns at is this idea of there's this kid, he hasn't really found his place, he's a bit nerdy, he gets picked on, and then he gets this muscle car and he starts working on the muscle car, and it's this idea of the fact the muscle car represents sort of masculinity, but it's like a twisted, like he's diverted his passion and his desire into an object. And John Carpenter rightly identifies that the scary thing for a film audience would be the idea that this nice young man becomes this foul-mouthed, awful, terrible, misogynistic human being, like testosterone fueled ultra-masculine, mean, cruel person through it, and that the, the relationship with the car is unhealthy. And if he'd been allowed, if he'd allowed himself, because I think that they were still in a position where John Carpenter could have gone, hey, I'm just going to override you, Stephen King. But I think he was actually invested in not annoying Stephen King, because why would you? It's just a dick move. Kubrick didn't care, because Kubrick was a bit of a recluse. But Carpenter was like, no, I'd like to get along with this guy. You know, I like to get along with the people that I work with. I feel that that, you know, a lot of his stuff with Kurt Russell and so on grows out of the fact that he's having a good relationship. Vampires, famously, he didn't get along with uh, many of the actors. Uh, I don't think he particularly got on with James Woods, for example. 
And for that reason, he classes it as a film he doesn't really like. So to John Carpenter, his relationship with his cast, crew and other people is really important. So he wanted to keep King on side. It, it would have actually benefited from going, no, I'm going to go down this line. And then you wouldn't have had that blind alley thing because the car and the guy could have been cohorts like it could have been a Jekyll and Hyde thing and they sort of slasher angle and all of this stuff but that would have gone totally off book which would have been a good thing but it didn't so it kind of ends up where it is now I'm going to group a well actually before we go on I'm going to group a few together in a minute because we hit a, a real line of substandard product but in amongst this is 1984's Firestarter which is not a bad movie and in fact it kind of gets tarnished in a way with the fact that it's like, oh, Stephen King, he's the master of horror. It's not a horror movie. It's a thriller about psychics. It's kind of Stephen King does scanners to a certain degree. And I think that that possibly, maybe people didn't, you know, they were walking in expecting uh, sort of Carrie Mark II, and it wasn't that at all. It was a thriller. But I think it's a fairly decent thriller, personally. And I really like the book as well. Uh, and it has some really good stuff that Stephen King used to do that he kind of stopped doing with uh, the government agency in charge of uh, supernatural containment called The Shop and The Assassin that they hired to do. All really great stuff in the novel. Not so good in the film because he can't go into it because obviously he, he builds the character up of The Assassin a lot more in Firestarter and how a man could be tasked with killing a child and how that man could come to to sort of embody that and and take that in and that's kind of part of the novel that's really horrific in the novel it's just some guy chasing her around trying to kill her so you know that that kind of fails but otherwise it's a fairly decent movie to see Firestarter no, I haven't. Ian no 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 Firestarter here I would recommend it it's all right it's a pretty decent movie so we'll move on to this pile of stuff the 1984 apart from Firestarter bought us Children of the Corn, and weren't we all grateful of that, children? Uh, Cat's Eye uh, was in 1985, Silver Bullet also in 1985, and Maximum Overdrive in 1986. Now, we have talked uh, about the fact that uh, although Maximum Overdrive is not the best movie in the world, it is, and this is like, it's like Christine turned up to 11, <laughs> haunted trucks everywhere because of a comet or something. What I love about Stephen King is his, his, his completely perfunctory attitude towards causatory incident. It's like, oh, some weird shit happened and then this went on. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? I'm not really getting why. Yeah, everything's haunted. Just accept it. Don't worry about it again, audience. <laughs> you know, so that, that's, that's what's going on there. But yes, just to uh, fill in, Children of the Corn, because I've never actually seen Children of the Corn. I understand it's okay, uh, yeah. but then it spawned like a billion terrible sequels, which is why we're not so keen on it. And the short story itself <laughs> isn't all that great. Cat's Eye. I quite like that. Which one, Cat's, Cat's Eye? Eye? Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Silver Bullet is a bit weird. That's <laughs> so, like a really overlong werewolf movie with uh, the protagonist being a kid in a motorised wheelchair with uh, a drunkard uncle. It's, it's just... Is it a possessed motorised wheelchair? No, it's not possessed. It's just uh, been built by a maniac. I mean, this kid is literally uh, piloting his uh, motorised wheelchair at speeds of up to 60 miles <laughs> per hour on a public highway. 
It's like, you're, you're not so scared he's going to get clawed to death by a werewolf. You're more scared that he's <laughs> going to... Uh, yeah, Sorry. also, um, this is an example of a film which may have worked at the time, but subsequent uh, cultural artefacts such as Twin Peaks and the people under the stairs have ruined it in retrospect because the werewolf is portrayed by the delightful form of Everett McGill, who we will know from such films as Dune, in which he plays one of the, whatever they're called, the Fremen, yeah? Um, uh, but yeah. then he's, he's one of David Lynch's favourite actors. He played Ed Hurley in Twin Peaks, and then he played the crazy landlord in The People Under the Stairs. And, <coughs> so and, and told that he sold the lawnmower in Straight Story. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, Everett McGill is now David Lynch's favourite so you know when Everett McGill's around, weird stuff is going to happen, and so obviously he's a preacher, he's the werewolf. That's, but in 1985, you might not necessarily have pegged that straight away. Now you see it, and it's instantly there. Yeah, I quite like Cat's Eye as well. James yeah. Woods in Quitters Inc. is yeah, brilliant. That's a, that's a great, that's my, I think that's what my favourite bit of it. Sorry, sorry. That, that is just a delicious... The fact that this cigarette quitting company, the the fact that they they'll do all these horrible things to you if you if you don't quit, it's just tire on you know uh, on kind of smoking and also anti smoking as well. It's it's um, and then it's got some other fun uh, um, uh, because it's a little anthology, isn't it? Where this cat essentially, um, where this cat goes on the, and so you've got you've got the I like the the one on the ledge as well. Yeah. That's very um, Hitchcockian. It's all about a guy. It's just the drama and tension of that. And it's got a very, and it's got, and it's got a silly troll thing as well, which is fun. <laughs> it's just good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, yeah, it's it's all over the place. Yeah. But I really like the framing mechanism. And yeah. um, I think, to be fair, because uh, having a cat run from place to place like a weird supernatural littlest hobo yeah. is just, yeah, awesome. It was, it, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the movie. The problem is that it's so patchy. I think a lot of people came out, and I think people's tendency is to forget the bit they thought was crap. And not to think, but the other bits were good, and so it was. It kind of failed. It withered on the vine. So you got some patchy stuff, but you can see that the king oeuvre is already beginning to get strong. I mean, I've realised that we've been talking for quite a while. We we only just dipped our toe, so maybe yes. we should pick up the pace a little. Uh, and of course, what better way to pick up the pace than by talking about 1986's Stand by Me? Oh no, wait, hang on. That's probably going to slow us down. Oh, no, right, okay. How to talk about Stand By Me. This is an interesting film because up to this point, everything Stephen King's done has been tinged. Horror, supernatural. There's some kind of element of that. Stand By Me is the first time that although, although they're going to see a dead body, it's really more about the character. Yeah. So to a certain extent, it's more of a straight adaptation. People love Stand By Me. And I think this is where Stephen King started to be able to pull a few more strings with regards to how his work was adapted, which has been a blessing and a curse in equal measure. I like Stand By Me. I don't think there's many people. Some people find it depressing, but they still like it. I think everybody likes Stand yeah. By Me. Do you like yeah, Stand By Me? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Uh, so, you know, what's not to love? Ian, you like Stand By it, Me? It's been a while since I've seen it. You'll have to refresh my memory. Why is it that everyone seems to know there's this dead body in the woods except the police? Like, even the kids know about it. Was that ever explained? Oh, no, it's because one of the older kids' friends oh. found it. And they haven't told the police, so no adults know that it's there. Only oh, the children, which is yes. kind of the point. 
is this the trope about in Stephen King novels about characters having not just not just awful parents, really, really awful parents? Like they must be deliberately trying for oh, worst yes. parent of Absolutely. the year award. Who turns to their son during his brother's funeral and goes, "It should have been you." I mean, my <laughs> God, man. <laughs> You might think it, but you don't actually come out and say it in public. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, actually, uh, terrible parenting is, you know, Carrie, terrible parenting. Yeah. The Shining, questionable parenting. <laughs> uh, children of the Corn, no parents, they evolve a cult like Lord of the Flies. You know, so yeah, terrible parent. Cat's Eye, the mother of the troll oh, girl in that yes. terrible... <laughs> Terrible decisions all the way along. Firestarter, daddy got involved in a psychic experiment, had a little fire-starting pyrokinetic daughter, is now on the run with her as a hobo. It's kind of like the pursuit of happiness crossed with scanners. You know, it's, you know, uh, yeah, people being in a tough spot and being parents. Actually, I think that's probably what it is. I don't think he's so much saying these people are terrible parents, even if they are. He's What he's saying is parenting is hard, okay? I mean, when he was writing Carrie, he was a school teacher living in a trailer. He was an alcoholic and he had, you know, a lot of it is his guilt about how he treated his own children when he didn't have anything. And so, yeah, it, it is a thing. There's no uh, self-help books about, you know, your child has uh, 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 <laughs> capabilities. <laughs> so let's um, <laughs> let's skip over. We have a couple of sequels then. We have Creepshow 2, Return to Salem's Lot. Now, this is an unusual one, so I'm about to blow everyone's mind here, uh, maybe a little bit, if you haven't been paying attention. The next Stephen King adaptation is 1987's The Running Man. Yes, it's a Stephen King adaptation. Wow. Welcome to the world of Arnold Schwarzenegger on Psychopathic Game Shows. It's adapted from a Richard Bachman book. Apparently, adapted is a loose term in this case. And because it was a Richard Bachman book, they didn't really play up the Stephen King. Uh, it's kind of an open secret that King and Bachman were one and the same. But uh, they didn't really play it up. And to be honest, the adaptation uh, goes in a completely different direction to the, the Bachman story that it's based on. But there we go. We have it. Uh, uh, right. Running Man? It, it Would you peg it? it is. Yeah. <laughs> Would you peg it as a Stephen King adaptation? No, Probably not. not. not well, it wanders so far off the point. Yeah, it's mean, not really worth it. It's but also it's, a total genre piece of a, you know, sort of thing and that type of thing anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just worth noting that yeah, that's a thing. So then more in the vein, 1989, finally. Now, Pet Cemetery was written a long time before this. This is a book that my mum found so distasteful. She loved Stephen King. That's where I got all of my Stephen King books from, was her bookshelves. And when she read Pet Cemetery, I'm t telling you now, after she'd got far enough into it to get the gist of what was happening and be like, oh, no, don't go and bury things in the pet cemetery. What are you doing? When she got that far, she said she had to keep the book in the freezer because she was that scared of it. OK, that's how unpleasant <laughs> she found Pet Cemetery. The film uh, has uh, Herman Munster in it and therefore less scary somehow, yeah. even though still quite unpleasant. Uh, Ian, have you seen the uh, uh, Encountered Pet Cemetery? No, I have not encountered Pet Cemetery. I'm sorry to say. You know what Pet Cemetery is about. You'd have a field day. Uh, I imagine it's about a cemetery where you bury pets and they come back from the dead or something. Uh, yes, that's good. But you've missed the uh, the vital thing, which is... 
they're not supposed to come back. Yeah, so you've seen Pet Cemetery? I have. Well, yes, I I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm aware of the fact that the written and dead is not supposed to be a normal thing. Yeah, but what happens is they have the cat, the cat gets run over, the the little boy, he's questionable parenting again. The, the little boy is like, oh, my cat is dead. He goes, don't worry, son, I'll take care of this. Takes it up the pet sandwich, cat comes back, but now the cat is a psycho, which basically means it's a cat. So it, it is forgivable <laughs> that he can't quite see what effect the pet sandwich has had. Then, oh no, his wife dies, and everybody's like, don't do it! <laughs> but guess what? He's up there with a spade, burying his wife, and back she, yeah, and back <laughs> she comes. The thing is, as a book, it just, it's that thing of, don't do it! And he's doing it, and you're reading, you don't know why you're still reading, and it's really unpleasant, and you feel that, that you're being taken on this horrible, grotesque journey. You watch a film, it's just like, this guy's an idiot. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Especially bearing in mind the fact that they replaced the cat with this, like, terrible cat puppet that just has flashing <laughs> green eyes. Ah, like that. Like, that cat is not even a cat. It's like some horrible animatronic evil death machine. And then it's like his wife dies and go, hmm, should I? <laughs> yeah. Pet's actually not the finest hour there. And as it says uh, in the Wikipedia list, that's based on a novel from 1983. So it took them a long time to make that. Was it worth the journey? I'll leave it up to you, dear watchers. So then we got the, the Tales from the Dark Side movie, which was kind of a spin-off of Creepshow after they'd made Creepshow, Creepshow 2, and it kind of got lost and blah, blah, blah. Graveyard Shift, based on the story from 1970. Does anyone accept me seeing Graveyard Shift? No. There's quite a good idea here. I think if they made, you could make this now, they would, it was a throwaway at the time. There was so much better going on in horror. These days, you'd be like, this is a really good idea for horror. Basically, guy has got a, a job working overnight in the sewers and there's giant rats. I mean, it's, it's simple. It's a sci-fi original waiting to happen. I, I, but yeah, it didn't really work out in 1990. But also in 1990, and more to uh, the, the hullabaloo of, of everyone generally, uh, came Misery, uh, based on the novel Misery from 1987. So it's a fresh adaptation, often regarded as one of the best Stephen King adaptations. Sue has thoughts here. Why don't you lean over so you can see it on the camera? Just the thing for Misery, if you want to make it slightly creepier, slow motion, the bit where she actually smashes his leg. It really is very well done and effective. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was just a second. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, again. Brilliant. I mean, Kathy Bates, I mean, you know, I mean, it, she's, I mean, uh, cemented herself there as, um, uh, just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm amazing. And, and this is the, this is where you're seeing, right, I'm understanding now the longevity really of Stephen King. Because up to this point, I'm not, I'm not really reading a lot of, um, uh, his stuff, but obviously he's prolific. And you kind of go, yeah, I get it. Because, um, and with, there's more to come, of course, but the more dramatic stuff, and you're, you know, you're, you're seeing why it works. And yeah, I mean, incredibly tense. You know, and yeah, I mean, just horribly brutal. I mean, absolutely nasty. And uh, yeah, I mean, fantastic. Uh, and yeah, the same year as Misery. I just had, unfortunately, they've carved up film and television into two different lists. They also brought out, I mean, this is a great year for King. 
in terms of adaptations so, to a certain extent. They also did the television miniseries of It, which, although it infamously has one of the rubbishest endings ever, yeah. the the journey on the way there, a lot of people love it. Yeah. Those people are scared of clowns. Sue so really doesn't, isn't scared I of clowns. hate it. Absolutely <laughs> hate that film. Not because I find it scary, because if I was a 30-year-old going back to my hometown where this clown had walked around for years going, hey, what a balloon, I'd have punched it in the face and told it where to go. Yeah. So to me, it's like, get over it, adults. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, the, the, we can't uh, underestimate though the cultural impact of, in a, in a, in a, in a, yeah, in a few years, Misery, Stand By Me and It all yeah. coming out at once. This is a, a really, really strong time. For him. Oh, and there's something being waved in front of the camera in Ian's vicinity. Is that a watering can of tepid water? No, hello. Or, oh, am I allowed to talk? I, uh, I'm yes. Just Carry on. Yeah. Past movies now. Um, yeah, of course. Famously, misery again has the trope of writer uh, dealing with a fan he wants to write his old stuff this time, yeah. however, rather than writer's block. Now, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've seen it. It's been a long while since I've seen it, but I'm willing to bet. One of those characters grew up to become a writer. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a drinking game. Every time we had to really... Yeah. Don't forget, Ian, while you're there, in Misery, in Misery, another trope, he's trapped. He's confined in the bed. He can't escape. So it's one of those ones where he gets to ruminate upon the history of his life in a pot. And obviously Annie Wilkes represents the shadow of death which apparently in this case is being forced to write more genre rubbish. I think Stephen hey, King was in a little bit of a horror cul-de-sac at this time. He was like, I don't want to write any more horror. It's like being tied to a bed by Kathy Bates and having my feet chopped off. Hmm, that makes a good idea for a novel. Uh, but yeah. but um, yes, it, look, guys, what's this thing about it made, it made clowns scary for me? Clowns were always scary. In fact, I believe it's being said now that clowns was supposed to be unnerving and a bit odd. That's why you don't care when horrible things happen to them in the little amphitheater. I quite like the whole kind of, it's in two time zones, so remembering what they're doing as kids and it has repercussions now. And as the miniseries itself, I love the first half. The first half struck me as really good at the time. And the second half was like, what a lousy payoff. How truly awful that was. The book, which is like a billion pages long, is no better. Yeah, that's the, the other And thing. the thing is, in fact, it's slightly worse because at least in the film, the bit where it's like, oh, it's a giant plastic spider is over in minutes. Mm. In the book, it's like there's all this stuff about psychic battles and people like floating around in the psychic ether. And it's just basically this whole thing of like, you don't know what's going on, do you, Stephen? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't find out, but <laughs> actually I'm just kind of making it up. Uh, yes, actually, who knew? To actually uh, just ask a question, what does it actually want? No, nothing, it's, it's, it's like it's, a, it's, a, it's, a... Right, okay, I'll try and explain it, but Stephen King failed to explain it, so yeah. I'm not holding out much hope. It is a thing that crashed into the place which became Derry from outer space. Yes, I, I, um, I know all that. What does it want? Why is it doing what it's no, doing? You know, Why menace people as a clown? Fear. If you read the book and watch the film properly, it feeds off fear. Hence the clown thing, because the clown's supposed to be scary. Yeah. And the spider thing, because spiders are supposed to be scary. Yeah. It's about 
initiating fear and getting fear responses from people to feed it. Which is actually, yeah, right, here is a thing, okay? And I don't know what, the thing is, he should have done it and then gone, oh, I've just realised that it's like uh, life force vampires. They sound like a great idea, but when you actually do them, it's like, that's a bit lame, really, because a vampire drinks blood. You cut your finger, blood comes out, vampires eat blood. It's all very visceral, and it means something. Life force vampires are like, oh, I feel weaker, I feel weaker. And you're like, what are you eating exactly? I don't get this. What's happening? And people realise it just looks stupid. So, um, yeah. Uh, they try and jazz it up sometimes by making it, yes, yeah, your life energy. They're very sexually predatory because it's all about sex. And it's like, now you're just right, bloody writing like slash fiction. Stop it. And this idea of something that feeds on your fear is like, it sounds great when you put it like that. But when you actually see it, it looks like a giant plastic spider with people throwing like <laughs> flower pots at it again. Ah, I hate yeah. you. I'm not scared of you anymore. They just, they just you know, push it over, as I recall, don't they, or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, no, they like mob it. They go, if we all stand together, then it, and that's the point. The solution to a fear monster is apparently trite, terrible, like, dunderheaded. Oh. This is why I was like, I would have just punched it and gone, oh, F off. Because yeah. by well, that stage, it's got nothing left to yeah. eat off you. But the thing is, the, 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 he tries to mitigate it by, it's, it's alien. That's why it's not something we know about here on Earth. It's like now he's got this yes. thing of magic aliens. Uh, so Ian, get ready to drink because coming up uh, very soon are more <laughs> film adaptations which feature magic aliens who do bizarre stuff because they're aliens. Those are probably so, two of the bigger ones. Uh, 1992 brought us the Lawnmower Man. Unless anyone's got anything special to say, I will just say that if you, apparently, I haven't tried this, I've not read, hugs are better than drugs, kids. But apparently, if you take large amounts of hallucinogens and watch The Lawnmower Man, Pierce Brosnan looks like a good actor in that movie. Burn. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. No, well, to be honest, Pierce Brosnan has his moments. But I think Pierce Brosnan is the same ilk as Michael Caine, Sean Connery, Bruce Willis. When he realises that the project's a bit of a loser, he just, like, checks out. All right, I, I'm here for the check. I, I'll do some acting-ish, but I'm not, not stretching myself. Lawnmower Man, has anyone got anything to say about it? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> there, there we go, that's a statement. It's, it's 90s, isn't it? It, yeah. it feels so 90s. It's it's one of the great archetypes. When I think of 90s, I think of things like the Lawnmower Man. Yeah, well, the thing about it is that the original story upon which... It's another one of these loose adaptations. The original story on which it's based is more of a Flowers for Algernon, except that when he boosts the gardener's intelligence using drugs, the gardener goes psycho. But then they went, it's the 90s, computers and virtual reality. That's what's going to make him a psycho. And then we'll have loads of... Also, it's just like, it's just the performance of the gardener is just terrible. I mean, it's just like, oh, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. Oh, now I'm the evil mastermind. I was like, yeah, subtle. Subtle journey, guys. <laughs> well, you know, Jeff Fahey, you know, if you want someone to choose scenery, he's your man. So, uh, yeah, so we had, uh, so we had Lawnmower Man. Uh, 1932 brought us the forgettable Sleepwalkers. 
Yeah, right. Let's move on. Uh, Pet Cemetery Two. Like we've already explained how. Uh, move that bloody cemetery! Stop taking stuff there. <laughs> no, it's like yeah. <laughs> Pet Cemetery Two. This time it's a car boot sale. Like, you buy something from the car boot. I'm probably giving Stephen King ideas as we speak, so I'm going to step right off there. Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice. Yeah, basically, as soon as we get out of the misery it zone, you're right into the, oh, God, what is happening? It's because, obviously, he'd built up this reputation. And as, you know, ooh, misery, ooh, it, ooh, stand by me, yeah. And the, the film producer went, hey, he's written loads of this crap. Quick, buy up the rights. <laughs> or the, maybe they don't, the thing is, Stephen King wanted to make money. He probably sold the rights to a bunch of this stuff before all of this stuff went big. And suddenly these films went, can't we buy the rights to that shitty story? Cha-ching! So, yeah, so this is why we get... And then, of course, that uh, culminates, or doesn't actually quite culminate, in 1993's one of George Romero, he of the dead fame, one of his worst movies, and indeed possibly the poorest uh, Stephen King adaptation I can think of, The Dark Half, which is a a pretty decent book. Although, the main character in The Dark Half is a writer. Ian is now going to fall <laughs> off his chair. <laughs> oh, oh, just save me some time. I'll just point straight into here. Tell me about it. Is he any good? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the dark? <laughs> Have you seen the dark half, Ian? I'm seeing it now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I'll take that as a no. <laughs> Um, have you seen the dark half? Right, okay. I'll run you through it very quickly. Main character's a writer. They have a mock funeral for like an alter ego pen name that he had that wrote really icky, violent pop fiction of the type that your mother wouldn't like. And then due to, um, various supernatural occurrences, the, uh, alter ego bursts out of the grave and comes stalking after the writer. It's a great book, uh, because it kind of makes a kind of hideous, sense even though it's complete nonsense and it's really well executed in the book film (laughs) so we'll move on we also had an adaptation of another book which i quite liked called needful things which was awful seen needful things yeah it's about a it's about a uh um (laughs) no it's not about a writer (laughs) (laughs) stand stand easy for a second Oh, no, it's, it's, it's haunted, oh, actually, it's haunted objects also in the big Yeah, yeah. Because people think, it's about a shop that sells cursed possessed items. Oh, yeah. So there we go. Right, uh, got him twice on that one. Uh, thankfully, the next movie adaptation was not uh, about a writer, doesn't have any haunted anything in it, and is generally well regarded as one of the best films uh, of our, our time. That being 
The Shawshank Redemption, yeah. based on the novella Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank uh, Redemption, which if you've seen the film, you'll understand why the longer title. You'll probably also understand from the longer title why they shortened it. Yes. All I've got to say, really, to sum up my feelings about The Shawshank Redemption is, ever since I was a small boy, <laughs> people have enjoyed listening to the sound of my voice. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's essentially all you need to know about The Shawshank Redemption, surely. Uh, uh, Justin, <laughs> any more to add? <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I mean, really, you know, it, I think you're right. I mean, it's, great. it's a great film. And, um, again, you know, it's highlighting the fact that if people maybe concentrate on... You know, character is what is clearly what Stephen King can really do well. Then maybe those horror films would be better—the ones that have just concentrated on the horror. Yeah. Um, because here, when you when you strip out, and so he can't do anything with his horrific scenes of, of, of a kind of a classic horror film. Um, you're left with a character, and then and then therefore directors that understand that, and there you have beautiful films like like this. So. Oh yeah, uh, Ian, uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> anything to say uh, while you still? I have I have seen this recently. Did no one look under that poster in twenty years? Apparently not. So uh, yeah, there we go. That's what we, that's what we've come up with. Morgan Freeman. Did nobody look under that poster? Yeah. Uh, and of course, the beginning of the beautiful friendship. It is a beautiful friendship between Stephen King and Frank Darabont. Which again, like many other things, you get a step right, and it turns out in the long run not to have been as right as it first seemed. But let's. Let's move on to... Oh, 1995, of course, brings the film adaptation we all love, The Mangler, Haunted Mangler. We won't make you drink twice <laughs> for that. Objects um, is done now. We've been the been to the shop where they sell them. <laughs> also in 1995, Dolores Claiborne, which is a great book and yeah, not is. such a good movie. Yeah, Have you seen the movie? Yeah, yeah I've seen no. the film. I was, I was disappointed because I had actually read that one. I was like, yeah, Ian? it's not as good. Dolores Claiborne? Yeah, have you seen Dolores Claiborne, Ian? No, no, afraid not. I don't Tell recommend it. Okay, Well, actually, this is another example, you see. Everybody was like, hey, that Kathy Bates, she was pretty special in Misery. Let's put her in Dolores Claiborne. And it, you know, there we go. Right, so yeah, so then we get some more of this stuff. Uh, Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace. That has really nothing to do with Stephen King. It's more about <laughs> Matt Frewer chewing the scenery, which is not a bad thing. Lawnmower Man 2, actually quite a fun movie, but it's... What? Because it's Matt Frewer going, I am the king of cyberspace! <laughs> Which is like brilliant. Yeah, not for the right reasons. Sometimes they come back again. Now, I watched the TV movie, or tried to. I watched half an hour of Sometimes They Come Back. So bad. Yeah. So, yeah, the fact that they made a sequel is just crazy. Then we get Children of the Corn 4, The Gathering, in which uh, Adrian Paul takes over from Christopher... Oh, no, wait a second, that's different. <laughs> Brad Tyson went off the rails. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and finally, uh, oh, well, while we're in that, we've got The Night Flyer, which I've not even seen. I mean, this is bewildering, the amount of movies that are coming out here. Uh, Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror. Uh, sometimes they come back for more. The The Rage... The Rage, Carrie 2, right, uh, yeah. Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return. Right. Um, so there we I go. A lot of those in the Children end, of they? the Corn Revelation. Oh, you'll be pleased to hear, Justin, there's a Mangler 2. <laughs> um, <laughs> Firestarter 2 Rekindled. Uh, 
The Mangler Reborn. So three men. Well, they could have tried that again, couldn't they? Reborn. Come on now. Uh, they could have had that, you know, uh, Preston or something. Uh, <laughs> Creep Show. Creep They're literally squeezing out of a mangle film, and that's ironic. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically, as we've said, there are a lot of sequels. So I'll just skip through those to save us the bother of ever talking about them again. In between these terrible, terrible things are such things as thinner, which is ridiculous. Yeah, he is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. Ian, thinner is that like darting turned sinister or something? Yes, 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 exactly that. Right, right. At the beginning, right in the book, (laughs) in the book, it's slightly weird and a bit like this isn't really working for me. In the film, at the beginning, you have what is clearly a very tall, thin, rakish man in one of the most ridiculous fat suits you have ever seen. (laughs) You're like, "Hmm, wonder what's going to happen to this guy, and then he annoys some gypsies and they put a curse on him. And then he's like, I seem to be able to eat and eat, but I can't put on any weight. In fact, I'm losing weight. And then he's like, yes, I'm looking trim and fair. Then he starts to look gaunt. And yes, okay, so it is kind of weird that there's this thing, you will never be able to eat enough. But it- Okay, uh, what was the number of these gypsies? I can always apologize. <laughs> 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 and there, my friend, there you have put your finger right on the left. The point is, yeah, okay, so you waste away. But in the meantime, you look great doing it. <laughs> um, and you can eat whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, probably a bit of a backfire. <laughs> wasn't really, I wanted it to be scary, not just kind of vaguely comedic and weird, which is what it ended up being. We also have an adaptation of his uh, disturbing novella, Apt Pupil, uh, which had Ian McKellen in it. Anyone seen Apt Pupil? It's a it's a really disturbing thing. Uh, you know Apt Pupil, Ian? Uh, what's what's the who's your pupil to? Right. Well, it's about right. Okay. This, I mean, it's a really good idea. I mean, Stephen King occasionally has these ideas that are just like, well, that's it's not in his usual vein either. It's basically the idea of taking someone like you know one of these weird young men who get obsessed with someone and then go into a bell tower and start shooting people. And he comes across an escaped Nazi in hiding in his small American town and so becomes a pupil to the Nazi torturer to learn to be an even more terrifying sociopath. Uh, yeah, there's not much, there's not many laughs, to be honest, okay. in that pupil. But, uh, I mean, I think the problem with that is it's too effective. It's like, uh, okay, now I'm just bummed out. So there we go, we've got that. Then a lot more sequels. Oh yeah, and then in 1999, The Green Mile. Okay. Okay. So, <coughs> we so you've got a... Tom Hanks with his prostate problem or whatever he's got. And yep. what's his name? Grabs him. Hand on the crotch. Michael Clark been... Duncan. Yes. This scene has been held up as the epitome of man, of white man trying to appease his guilt. I think, isn't it? You know. Let me touch your penis and heal you, says the holy black man. It, it, it's, it's been helpful. There's like, white guys just have a lot of exercise around here, don't they? That was basically, <laughs> that was all, it was a throwy comment. It wasn't worth holding back for. Yeah, well, the Green Mile is where the uh, King-Darabont relationship starts, I think, to show uh, cracks. Now, the Green Mile, if anyone remembers from a literary point of view, was an interesting thing. Back in the mid-90s, they were like, 
wonder if people would buy serialized novels. So they would sell you like a bit of the Green Mile for a pound. I remember it. Uh, yeah. And the answer to that in 1995-6 was no, not interested. Like they would look, people would look at the tiny sliver of Stephen King, the Green Mile Part One, and be like, uh uh-uh. uh. And they just mm. wouldn't buy it. Nowadays, of course, Kindle being what it is, would have been fine, but it didn't work back then. But it showed that they were trying to innovate. But so eventually the Green Mile, oh, just screw it, we'll put it out as a novel. They did. It's a pretty good novel. I really enjoyed the novel. I totally did. I thought that the film fell short. It's like the Shawshank Redemption movie lifts the novella up into a new space where you can appreciate it a whole different way. The Green Mile movie is like you watch it and you're like, nah, I remember this book was really good. I should go and read the book again. And that's that's how it is. So yeah, that's that was my feeling. Yeah, really? I, 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 I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay, but I'm, unfortunately, you're going to think about the Shawshank Redemption, and because that's so good, then it's like, wow, okay, all right, yeah, it's not well, as good I as think, that. I think because the Shawshank Redemption is quite an epic movie over a stretch of time, it's about someone's life effectively. Yeah. Whereas Green Mile is almost like a stage play. It's like there was this period of time, and these were the things that happened in that period of time. And and also, yeah, my God, unreasonable! What the little nerdy, the really nasty little guard. He has no redeeming features whatsoever. None. It's it's like specialising in just writing just the most unpleasant character you could possibly think of. And at oh, the end, he really does. Though. Yeah, then he really, 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 genuinely does utterly destroy him. By the end, he gets his comeuppance. But yeah, he's like. Surely there must be one thing about him that's nice. You know, one feature that's redeemable. Nothing. Nothing at all. Even when he's reading a book, he's secretly got some pornography <laughs> stashed inside there. You know? it's Yeah, I mean, it was, it's not a bad movie. It's a pretty good movie. I think one of the things that's interesting is that some people cry like babies. Other people find it nakedly emotionally manipulative, and therefore their heart kind of hardens a bit. It, it's, it's, it's an interesting alchemy that goes off there now uh 2001 anyone here familiar with hearts in atlantis heard the title but that's it did it sync with that trace oh very good Ian. very good <laughs> see what you've done there um <laughs> what can i tell you uh, if you haven't seen it it's a film where anthony hopkins is a magic old man being stalked by mysterious possibly aliens possibly government operatives possibly just a plot device don't know where this kid is around in a town and their sort of uh, coming of age type stuff happens right wow it's completely like just even if you get it it goes over your head i didn't even know it had any supernatural things because it sounds like just a title or something i mean it sounds like a this worthy kind of thing, and it's about something. But okay, I didn't know anything about that. I knew he was in it. It is the most un-Stephen King title I've heard so far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there we go. I mean, the thing is that Stephen King had at this point dabbled in the world of more fantastic stuff. The Eyes of the Dragon, which is his straight-out fantasy novel, is so good. But it was written at a time when people didn't make fantasy movies, and has since been kind of shuffled and forgotten. But yeah. The Eyes of the Dragon is amazing. Although it does include a bit, now I come to think back on it, where a guy escapes from a tall tower in which he's been imprisoned by getting little bits of thread out of napkins he has served with his dinner. Which now I actually come to think back on it is kind of lame. But, you know... It took him 400 years. You know, made that knotted cheek. Yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. 
Uh, but there we go. Cool. Uh, more sequels. Oh, yeah. 2003's Dreamcatcher. Who's seen Dreamcatcher? Yeah, that needed not to be made, yeah. Uh, no, I bought the merchandise. I believe you can get them. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's another... Here's an object that's connected to dreams. Oh, no, you no, no, object no, with no, 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 you've, no, you've, you've been misled there. It's As not, a, it's not an evil dream catcher with nightmares in it. No. <laughs> no, in I'm fact, I'm ready. Go, the title, go. The, the title dream catcher is kind of a metaphor. There is a dream catcher in it, but it doesn't do it right. This is one of his magic aliens have come to feed on our fear uh, stories. In which, right, okay, first of all, there's an asshole general. You know you were talking about the asshole in uh, Green Mile yeah. who gets his comeuppance? Well, in this, Morgan Freeman plays an asshole general, and it's just so wrong. I could see that Morgan Freeman was like, I want to expand my repertoire beyond friendly old man into something a bit more diverse. But it so doesn't work because you're like, oh, we don't mind that you're shooting people <laughs> and being a genocidal maniac, Morgan Freeman, forget, because you're so cute. Don't forget the special needs kid who's also an yes, alien. Yes, it has a magic special needs kid in it who's also an alien. Okay. And, uh, and a group and he, of friends he befriends who, as adults, then get... He's giving certain gifts to, so that yeah, psychic gifts. Adults, so then, when they're adults, they can help him defeat the evil aliens. Yes, um, and and uh, yes, uh, it's, wow. it's like bloody toes. Yeah, it's <laughs> like Stephen King's bizarrest hits in one movie. It's like magic aliens, magic disabled people, Morgan Freeman playing a psychopath. It it blows your mind for all the wrong reasons. Why are these aliens feeding off fear? Isn't that like a more plentiful food source to rely on oh, don't than how start. people are feeling? We were there with it, right there. But yeah, just yeah. Okay, so yeah, uh, that kind of happened. And two thousand and four was also a bad year because that brought us the Johnny Depp vehicle that was Secret Window. I'm imagining many of us have had that inflicted upon them. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You don't know what Secret Window no. is, You're right? Okay. Have you seen Secret Window, Ian? Count yourselves among the luckiest people alive on the planet today. <laughs> Not only is it Johnny Depp overacting in a oh, room... Oh, I know what it is. Yeah, ...for an hour oh, and a half. It's also... The twist is... The main character and the antagonist are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't actually Charlie. do my drink game for that one. I actually require heroin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yes, that's that's really irritating. We're because trying not to, to, but Stephen King... Stephen King is making this very difficult. Uh, so at least it's, we haven't had a main character who's a, a writer for a while. So Ride, Riding the Bullet, I've not seen. Has anyone seen Riding the Bullet? No. See, there's, there's too many movies. If we'd have watched all these movies before we'd come on here, oh, the state of our brains would have been terrible. Uh, that so, for me. Uh, for 1408, I went to see it in 2007 with you. Yes, yes, I did. We went to the cinema to see it. Uh, main character's a writer, isn't he? Yes, and yeah. uh, lots of objects in a room. Yeah, a haunted room. There's a wardrobe and a writing desk. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson as well. <laughs> 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 
he can he can it's come okay. into the room with John Cusack and go, I want that melon farming writing desk out of this melon farming hotel room. It's all good. Uh, Ian, uh, sorry about that. Fourteen eight eighty is what it is. I'm becoming a happy drunk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I didn't. Well, I don't. Right, I just want to make it plain. We I'm not didn't... advocating this in any way. <laughs> no, but not only that, we didn't say, Ian, you have to play a drinking game. It's not drinking I think you bigger. just tied up Ian Saturday, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I've been trying to whip my alcoholism into the podcast for some time. <laughs> um, so apparently in 2007 they made a film called No Smoking which is Quitters Inc again which if you've already made Quitters Inc yeah, with James Woods yeah. in it seems pointless so nobody's seen that yeah. uh, uh, 2009 brought us Dolan's Cadillac nobody's seen that have they? no 2013 brought us the pointless remake of Carrie it was pointless there we go that's all we can say <laughs> that's the point somewhat I think um, and then in 2014 they made A Good Marriage, which I watch because it's on Now TV at the moment. Don't bother. <laughs> the fant- most fantastic of things. A film that is, like, so tedious, you're like, well, this has to have a twist, surely. You're we trying know. to guess what the twist is, and then it turns out there is no twist. It's exactly what it appeared to be all along. I think we've, I think we've, missed, I think we've missed one. We haven't missed one. It'll be in the TV adaptations. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking of the mist, right? Oh, sorry, where did that come in? Yeah, God, we've got to. Please, let's kick... talk about that. Oh, it was after 1408, before let's no smoking. That. It was in 2007. Oh, I mean, the mist is the amazing. Mist. I absolutely love the mist, and I, I had to bring it from the original. I remember watching. It. I didn't know it was a Stephen, uh, Stephen King until I'd seen like three minutes of it, and went, "I think this is a Stephen King film because it appears to be set in Maine." There's like uh, one of the characters is an artist. But it's like it's character based. And when it goes on, I mean, I, I, I love the mist, by the way. I, but that is what we're talking about Cujo, and it's about, you know, it's the people trapped situation. And that actually does it because it's about people breaking down trapped in the supermarket. And all of the character stuff is there is perfect. The fact that there's all these monsters and anything else in it, um, but that captures that, they, like, they got it. It's like you can have the monsters, but it's really about the monsters of what people turn into under certain circumstances. I've got a cup of coffee here. Tepid. Um, yeah. I, me and Leo didn't like the miss and particularly the ending. Really hated it. Yeah, really hated it. Any in particular. No, it's not difficult. It's just a dick move. It's yeah. like... Yeah, I mean, I believe that is a departure from the book. The book, the guy kind of wanted, they find the army and everything's fine. Um, I, I, however, I kind of found it quite brave. It's really horrible. And, um, but I, part of me kind of went, it was totally unexpected. Like, that is not a thing I've seen any, ever in a film before. Yeah, well, there's a reason why that you no, haven't no, seen it. It's no, like, the problem is, it's contrived. You know, it's like yes. the army were just waiting around outside, looking, listening out for the gunfire, just so they can go tootling in at precisely the wrong moment. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Here, uh, 30 seconds earlier, I would still have at least a daughter or something. 
<laughs> and there Ian sums it up. You see, the, and the thing is, I think what makes it worse yeah, is Ian that drunk yeah. for yeah. all the reasons. At the, <laughs> at the time when it came out, people were going on about this. The point is that as a student of drama, that's not tragedy. It's yeah. just a dick move. It's just arbitrary bad stuff happening to people for no yes. reason. Well, when the dad sees the army, he makes that, that guttural noise that really comes me his heart. It goes, go! It's basically, it's, it's a Simpson moment. <laughs> you, yes, exa- that's exactly right. Or, alternatively, maybe he's a younger Victor Meldrew. That's why they're childless. Like, you know, he shoots the kid and the army goes, I don't believe it! <laughs> yeah. That's the point. It's like, I found the film fairly overlong and quite tedious, and then the cherry on the top was that rubbish, and I just left the cinema like, that makes me so irritated. I've wasted two hours of my life on that. So yeah, me and the mist are not good friends. So maybe you're sorry that you brought that back up now. You're allowed to like it. But it's just like, when you like something and everybody's just like... I think we uh, the end is controversial. I think yeah. if you didn't have that, if you had the end ending that Sinking wrote, I think everyone would be much more satisfied yeah. and go, yeah. it's been horrible and, you know, most people have, have, a lot of things have happened, but okay, we have our happy ish ending and then we're done. And I think, yeah, I, I probably agree that probably uh, it makes the whole thing tied together better. Yeah. They should have stuck with King. But I think, yeah, well, the um, weird thing is that Stephen King actually said that he <laughs> the only reason he didn't write that ending is because he didn't have the balls. Yeah. And I'm like, um, yeah, that just shows your complete lack of understanding of what's a good idea and so on. So anyway, let's, let's, let's move on. We also had a film called Mercy, which uh, hasn't come out. It's, it's actually a based on a short story from Skeleton Crew, as is The Mangler and Graveyard Shift. So... We could probably guess the quality from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, upcoming is an adaptation of Cell, and apparently The Dark Tower is coming out in 2017, or at least some of them. So, yeah, while we're the television series movies that we've kind of not gone into because they're in a separate list, there was the TV series Golden Years, in which the guy yeah. got Benjamin Buttoned. Yeah, yeah. that was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy Knockers, Magic Aliens, and a character who's a writer. <laughs> um... No, yeah, two the right. The Tommy Knockers is special in my mind because uh, what it does, the aliens who are there to actually they're there to invade Earth. It's far more normal than the usual no. nonsense. They come to invade Earth, then run away. Because then they're <laughs> Tommy Knockers. Oh, I see. I see what you've done there. No. Um, <laughs> well, that was the whole thing that I remember about Tommy Knockers. But what happens is that the aliens psychically get us to destroy ourselves by right. Yeah. Okay. Let's go through dumb alien invasion plans 101. <laughs> they uh, crash land under the earth in a manner similar to the War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise uh, many years, eons ago. And then at some point when we're technologically advanced enough, they send us psychic dreams which allow us to modify our technology so that, for example, one of the things that's supposed to be terrifying here is that somebody bolts something onto the back of a Coke machine so that it floats around the place and crushes people against walls. (laughs) Oh, it's scary! (laughs) Um, 
and someone died in a coke machine thing in in the other one as well, maximum overdrive. So that, yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so that's the thing that happens. Um, and yeah, they basically make all these wacky inventions of alien tech, and then the aliens come out of like eggs in the ground and try and take over it. Wow. Yeah, stuff okay. So we've got the. I think as far as alien in- invasions, one hundred and one bad. That's that's up there with the the aliens who don't like water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, anyway, let's... <laughs> death ray people is effective. Yeah, okay, death ray. yeah. The one is like, I mean, I can imagine the alien pitch for this. It's like, right, okay. So we all get into our giant stone eggs and fly towards Earth. All right, we land, we burst out of the eggs, we kill everybody. No, 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 no. No. What we do is we bury ourselves under the ground. And then we pop up out of the ground, death rate? No. (laughs) We hibernate until the uh, civilization on the Earth is sufficiently technologically advanced for us to steal their guns and kill them. No. (laughs) For us to infiltrate their dreams and make... (laughs) We wait wait until they develop beverages and then technology <laughs> that dispenses <laughs> beverages <laughs> which are the early forms of large refrigerators with a simple anti-gravity modification squish 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 <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah it's like what happened to alien Fred he got fired his invasion plan <laughs> Look, Zerglon, I like your plan, but can we just go back to releasing a virus like we normally do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so Tommy Knockers. Uh, that's all you need to know, guys. Yeah. Um, I, so, right, what else have we got, we got here? Um, the Stand miniseries, uh, which is actually all right. Um, the okay. bit where... Uh, we've, we've already had the story. Go on, Ian, do it oh, again. Sorry. Well, did I tell it on a previous podcast or was it just in conversation with you? I can't remember done. now. Everything's kind of a blur for some reason. But, uh, it's, 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 it's at the very, this came out in the early nineties as I recall. It was just at the same time the National Lottery started up. The National Lottery in the, advert in the UK was of course a giant golden hand coming down from the sky and pointing at you and going, it could be you. And of course the end of the stand is when all the bad guys are about to activate their nuclear missile. The hand of God descends through the skies. And for us in the early 90s, it was like, it's National Lottery has come to save us. <laughs> <laughs> the nukes will not be killing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then we have, oh, yeah, the Langoliers. Everyone loves that, right? Oh, God, Evil God. Pac-Man. Painful memories of that. All those effects that, oh, oh no, no. <laughs> yeah, we're not big fans there. The, the, the Pac-Men that eat the past. And, oh. <laughs> the past being in airport. Because that's so eerie when they're empty, isn't it? No. <sighs> uh, right, okay, so, yes, so there we go. Uh, then we oh, have yes, that shiny disabled, disabled kid with magic powers again. Yes. Uh, then we have the shining uh, television adaptation. Uh, Quicksilver Highway, which I can't really talk about because I don't know it. Storm of the Century, that was rubbish. Yes. Anyone no, seen that? Yeah, wasn't that great. That was the one with a demon called Legion in it, wasn't it? It was it's a small the one where town. turns up at a church and asks people to sacrifice yes. their children. He's, he's a demon, he wants one of their children. Uh, and of yeah. course, here's his scary motif because we've got to have our like 
scary little meme thing that people can say over and over again. This demon's thing was to go, uh, it was the I'm a little teapot song. I'm not kidding you. That was his scary thing, saying, doing the I'm a, I'm a little teapot short and stuff. Seriously? He, he, he must have, like, he has a book of nursery rhymes. He must have been gradually crossing them off. And this is what left, <laughs> left in the barrel. <laughs> Uh, I'm starting to understand another motive I had for the Stephen King. This is one of the Stephen King things. If you had to drink every time Stephen King did something that he thought might be scary, that misfired and was just ridiculous and funny, you, yeah, now. we'd have to. You'd have a <laughs> stomach <laughs> pump in you by now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Storm of the Century. Uh, then they did a television adaptation of a book that I never read, but the film, the movie, television movie is pretty good. Rose Red. Seen Rose Red? You've seen oh, Rose Red? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah, it's quite creepy that. Yeah, it's just a classic haunted house type of thing. It was pretty decent. Then they ruined that by um, doing a sequel, television prequel, called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, which is really dull. So well done. Again, one step forward, one step back. Kingdom Hospital. Oh, hell yeah. I love Kingdom Hospital. People kind of criticised it for thinking that it was trying to be willfully weird. And it was. But I really but it was enjoyed weird that series. In a really fun way. Yeah. I think that's why you've got to love Kingdom Hospital. If you can't enjoy the absolute bizarreness of Kingdom Hospital, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. Kingdom Hospital? Yeah, very strange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Love the Anteater. Yeah. Well, it's not just the Anteater, it's the, the psychopath who's having his brain removed while singing and things like that. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, it's like, Great. But then again, we have that Stephen King, I think this will be evocative, and then you listen to it going, this isn't really playing. You do me a solid, I'll do you a solid. It's like, are we talking about poop? or Possessed <laughs> 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 poo, the new Stephen King. No, the, the, the thing is, it's saved by its funness, and <laughs> some of the characters are so bizarrely great, it's you know, you kind of you kind of can't help but like it because there are characters in there who are sort of normal, and they balance out with the ones that are very weird. So yeah, I like Kingdom Hospital. Yeah, Kingdom Hospital generally gets the thumbs up around these parts. Uh, they did another adaptation of Salem's Lot. Apparently, it's pretty decent. I've never seen it. Desperation, one of my favourite Stephen King novels. Terrible TV movie. Just a lot of people sitting around mumbling in buildings. It's oh. Never saw the nightmares and dreamscapes thing. Oh, apparently they did a TV movie read adaptation of Children of the Corn because we really needed that with yeah. eight sequels. <laughs> um, oh no, they've rebooted. Oh Christ! <laughs> oh, and uh, just to just to bring it up to date, uh, obviously we had TV series Haven, which was loosely based off some stuff he wrote once. Yeah. It's not even really worth talking about. But the really big thing that was there it was that he did. Under the Dome, in which Stephen King tried to wring terror out of something, the thing that happened in the Simpsons movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? Um, and then the thing about it is, people who actually stuck with this pile of poo uh, were, like, complaining, because it's like, how are they still driving cars? It's like, because it makes no sense and is not... And oh, the whole thing was just infuriating really from the get-go. Get yeah, a whole town enters... The TV audience leaves. Welcome <laughs> to King Dome. Uh, so there we go. That's kind of the story so far. It's not the story so far because there are things in production right now. It has not. But let's just take a moment to assess the fact that we have just uh, how how many things. And the problem is, 
most... how, how bad is Ian at the moment? <laughs> how are you, Ian? How are you holding up? I feel like I've been struck behind by a truck. Yeah. <laughs> it's a truck, this truck. With the green goblin's face on the front. Yeah, driven <coughs> by a writer. <laughs> <laughs> no, wasn't, wasn't, Stephen King, wasn't Stephen King actually hit by a truck from behind? Yeah. A van, yes. He got he got hit by a like a sort of transit a thing van. as I understand it. The the which was of course the inciting incident for Kingdom Hospital. In which the main character there was a writer. Um, no, I guess <laughs> I, I in one hour is enough. Leave the bleach, leave I, it. I completely, actually, uh, you're all right. He changed the self-insertion character. He'd realised it was bad. He made him an artist in that one. But it was right. the same sort of thing. Loosely based on the real thing that had actually happened to him. In the 80s, he would have been a writer as well. But, you know, we've moved on. Yeah, I mean... What's so bizarre about that is that we've had to, it's taken quite a long time to go through that enormous list. And what comes out at the end of it, we're all laughing. And that's the problem. He's paralytic. He's not, (laughs) he's not the master of horror. He's the master of you watching a horror, what you think. I think it's, that might be a little unfair because not all of us have read all of his books. Uh, no, in books, he is definitely the current. And I think that's, that is, that's the issue, isn't it? I think that the, you know, it's, it's, it, very, very rarely are you getting adaptations that really get to the heart of the No, 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 you, you've misunderstood the unique problem here. Where it's been strongest, I mean, The Shining is seen as a great movie, but it's seen as a great Kubrick movie. Nobody cares about the fact that the original was written by Stephen King. The problem is, the closer you tend to get to adapting what's in the book onto the screen, the more it becomes apparent that the book is a book. He writes books that are books. You can't take them and put them straight on the screen. In order to make the same idea work cinematically, you I essentially... that's what you have to take with Stephen King. He's a good horror character writer, but he's not a good TV director, producer kind of person. It's, it's not for that. It's, it's, it's medium. Is, he's is had better success it. where he's deliberately set out to be on television yeah. uh, yes. or film. That is better, but adaptation-wise... Speaking as a guy who's never actually read Stephen King, my main impression I have of his novels is just what doorstoppers they are, because I used to see them lying around your house, and it's like, that's an intimidating 1,500 pages worth of book I have to get through there. I think I'll just watch the three-hour mini-TV mini t- series, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, do you think that the TV series are more uh, closer to the sort of source material? Do you think that it benefits from having the time to explore characters that a film can't do? Definitely it does, but I think the key point here is if you look at the Stand miniseries, where it's pretty close... I mean, the the thing I would really disagree about with Stan, I should probably brought this up, is that in the book, and the 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 villain, Randall Flagg, is the same villain in The Stand and The Eyes of the Dragon. So he's this crazy, dimensional, wanderer, evil wizard, magician type, except in The Stand television series, where he's a country and western singer. And you're like, oh, no... Randall Flagg is one of the most terrifying entities in the universe. That is not Randall Flagg. So that was bad. But other than that, it's pretty decent. The characters are well done. But the minute that the hand of God comes down to swipe away the nuclear missile, you're like, for reals, yo? And you're like, yes, for reals, yo, because that's what he wrote. And that's the problem. Things that he can make work when they're happening in the theatre of your mind 
in real theatre cinema terms, you, you, they just don't work. Uh, which is why Kubrick went, croquet mallet, it's an axe. Yeah, because in the book, the idea, in the book, he does these great evocative scenes of like Danny having nightmares about his dad. Boom, boom, boom of the hammer as it crushes the plane. And Kubrick's like, yeah, but if you showed that, it would look silly. It's a man toting a rubber headed mallet and bashing it into the wall. So let's just make it an axe and that's scary. And it's that kind of thing. It's like the. And then you go and watch the documentary and it, the, the axe is about sexual repossession or something stupid. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the, we already bit, discussed yeah, yeah. crazy things. My, my favorite, uh, Kubrick the Shining conspiracy theory is that it was an apology to the world at large for helping NASA fake the moon landings. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Everyone dreams at this point. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, this is the point as a pop culture figure, the novels often, even when they're bad, they're kind of good. You, you know, you wouldn't read a book that big unless you were kind of enjoying it. Even if you get to the end and go, yeah, I could see that that was problematic in the long run. But the film adaptations, the closer you seem to get to what King wants, the further away you get, it seems most of the time, from something that's actually good. And that's a bit of a problem because what you're saying is, in order to make a decent film, you have to completely throw out uh, most of what's actually in the content of the book. You could take the core idea and the characters mostly, but really when you're coming to make a thing, it's like I can see that when you get a bold producer, they'd be like, hey, Stephen, we love your book, but we're a little bit concerned that the main character is a writer with uh, uh, emotional issues and we're really not sure about the haunted lawnmower and you know and just going through all these things which are key parts of the book and go you know we really don't think people are going to be scared of a floating coke machine Stephen we really want to change that out and it's just like well you've essentially gutted it and that's a big problem so I I think to me the other issue I have with Stephen King sorry Mr King on this one but is is the idea that He's allowed to do that. He's allowed to constantly do the, oh, it's a writer and it's, it's this, that and the other. But if M. Night Shyamalan have a ding dong does anything like that, he is ripped to shreds. And it's because it's Stephen King. He's allowed to get away with actually being a bit lazy sometimes. I guess that's true. I mean, you, I, I, I think I, that I, when I you're... That's what I don't yeah. like. That's the thing. I, it's like, come on, Stephen. You actually are a better writer than this. Come on. Well, you know I, I, d- I think that what I would say there is that Shyamalan's probably not the best example, but you're right. No, Nobody else could of, get away yeah. with this stuff. Yeah. Only Stephen King yeah. could get away with this stuff. And it's, a, it's an almost insoluble problem because although we've had a good chuckle about haunted laundry machines and, and giant plastic spiders <laughs> and making Ian very drunk with self-insertion characters and all of this kind of stuff, you've still got Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> The Film of Misery, uh, the original film of Carrie, even the pointless remake is okay, I suppose, but we're talking about the really decent movies. Kubrick's The Shining is a great movie, whichever way you look at it, even though it's quite insufferably Kubricky. You know, there are points at which it's like the, the world is better off for having these things in it. Yeah. And then you have six sequels to The Children of the Corn, <laughs> two sequels to The Mangler, three sequels to Sometimes They Come Back. Oh my god, my brain is bleeding! So, Isn't it's a. Paul Pet Cemetery 
novels as well? Or no, no, not novels. There's one Pet Cemetery. There's two, three Pet Cemetery movies. That's what I meant. It's like, uh, so yeah, so it's a bit of an insider. If you were to solve the Stephen King problem, Justin, what would you do? <laughs> I would. No, seriously, I think I would basically make people look at writing, concentrating on the characters and the situations rather than the the horrific elements that are just easy options because sure you know the uh, those those things that he writes are very memorable and just throwing them at the screen and not concentrating on the characters i think is a problem yeah i mean another thing that could have been making ian drink throughout this entire exercise is when stephen king is like oh it's scary and it's happening and you go but why is it happening who died to make this haunted house or who did this and you go I don't know. Just forget about it and read about the characters. And you're like, I, what? This month, I mean, Christine is big for that. You've got no idea why the car is haunted. And he keeps half-assing possible explanations, but then never sticking to one. It's terrible. Ian, uh, your final thoughts on what to do about Stephen King? Uh, prohibition. <laughs> prohibition. Well, I think obviously the answer is clearly to uh, knock him over with a van, drag him back to our log cabin, tie him to the bed, break his leg. Break his leg. Yeah, that's fine. Um, over and over again in slow motion. I've got this down now. Yeah, so there we go. We're his number one fans. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's got a place to bring Sue, the to Sue, do you own any penguins at all? I'm just wondering. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is as good a place as any to bring proceedings to a close. Thank you for joining us here on our Halloween special. If people wish uh, to contact us in the ether, Ian, where might they go to do such a thing? Well, one place you could point your haunted browser would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook for slash Revenge of the Ages Kids. And that's Ages as numbers, eight zero S. Uh, please go there and like our page. We're trapped in this place and we can't escape. Uh, but it's also our community hub, and we put up links there, and mischief, and so forth, and so on. But another place you could go would be, uh, where is it here? It's somewhere on my list. It's, uh, here it is. Aidiskids.blogspot.co.uk, uh, which is our archive. We can find lists of all our shows here, and if you download those shows, you become very afraid, and aliens will eat your fear. Anyway, uh, this is not, this is, but this is not enough for you. You can hunt down individual self-insert writers in such places as... Uh, well, leostableford.com is where I insert myself uh, on various occasions. <laughs> oh, I've heard that, Leo. Oh, and you need to yes. stop doing that. No one's interested. It's a paper <laughs> website. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find all the stuff that I do there. Uh, I haven't done much of that, but obviously it's about to be November, so National Overwriting Month. Ahoy! But yeah, so that's that's where I am. And Justin, where might people go to find um, you apart from on my sofa? <laughs> um, I've got my DeviantArt page, uh, Justin uh, White DeviantArt.com. I've also got a, um, a Facebook uh, page, Justin White Illustration. A lot of the stuff I do from my tablet, which I've got recently, and it's a little bit strange sometimes, but I think it's a. <laughs> 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 yeah okay so there we go uh right <laughs> to be fair i think that uh, this is uh as much stephen king as you can eat and it is halloween so uh i hope we might have given you some ideas of films you might not want to watch this halloween <laughs> but leo 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 one second 
you know, uh, it's been a while since we've got together. It's been about four months or so because it took that long for me to recover from the liver transplant. But when are we all <laughs> going to meet again? Um, well, that is a very good question. Um, there, a very is good the answer. there is the possibility of a Christmas episode, maybe. Um, we, essentially, this was kind of it. We had a special occasion. It was here. Uh, another special occasion will come around, I am sure. But won't that mean that Ian's going to be on the sofa this time? Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. That's the special occasion we're referring to. Yes, guaranteed. Forget all the rest of the nonsense, or don't forget it, watch it, please. Thank you. But, <laughs> uh, but there is a definite thing. Uh, we will have some kind of around about New Year, Ian on the sofa, not in his uh, study in Australia special, in which we will find something filmic to talk about as a special, very special 80s kids occasion Christmas coming up then. So, yes, yeah, look out for New, more new Year's than Christmas, but yes. Yes. Well, it won't be kiss. It'd be after Christmas, but before yeah. New Year. So there we go. All right. So that is definitely, that's a definite date, which I shall make a Google event for shortly and put details on the Facebook page. Uh, but for now, uh, it's time for us to go and enjoy the rest of what remains of Halloween. So uh, bye bye, everyone, I guess. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> you killed him. <laughs>